0: Tip of the hat to all you morticians that are listening today. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkoski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. They were the most notorious outlaws of the Great Depression, known both for their violent crime spree as well as their scandalous public image. Their names have gone on to be forever linked to the image of young criminals in love. Today, we take a look at the infamous legend of Bonnie and Clyde. But first, what's your favorite Texas sport fish?
1: Well, I am going to go with the sheep's head, um, known as the Arcosargus probatocephalus, um, because um, on the many trips that we went uh, when I was a kid uh, out into Moses Lake on the Texas Gulf Coast near Texas City, um, my brother caught one, uh, which uh, my dad uh, deemed large enough to enter into the uh, the Texas City Tackle Time competition. Um, but unfortunately, by the time we actually got back to have it weighed in and everything, it had uh, shrunk or whatever fish do when they get put in an ice chest and uh, didn't quite win anything. But I will always remember that. That fish in that moment. Um, I will also give an honorable mention to the hardhead catfish because uh, I caught way more of those than I caught
0: anything worth catching. This is a useless fish in a scourge of the gulf. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about the mighty tarpon, Megalops atlanticus, also known as the Silver King. And, uh, you know, there were some really there's a really famous... Uh, a lot of famous stories, and I hope to do an episode in the future about uh, just how they would run through Aransas Pass, and there was a whole industry built on them. But, uh, you know, some environmental changes and just time has moved their migration patterns. So there isn't the big tarpon fishing industry anymore like there used to be, but these are just beautiful, crazy, weird dinosaur fish because they have these giant scales, and they just are they are kind of... And it's kind of interesting is... Uh, they're, they're a little bit unknown, but uh, they actually spawn and um, some young ones can be found in like brackish rivers of Texas before they head to sea to become the mighty silver king of the Gulf.
2: Well, I'm going to go with the striped mullet, which uh, Mugilidae trailer parkicus does like a fish just business in the front and party in the rear. You don't know how to fish, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I, just like, I just like the idea of a fish called a mullet. Uh, just because it's called a mullet doesn't mean it has a mullet in my mind it does (laughs) a striped one well eventually that mullet
1: fish will move on to phase two
0: (laughs) (laughs) there's an obscure joke for Uh, you okay like most of the country the years of the great depression were bleak and bitter for the people of texas The country's economic collapse combined with the horrific effects of drought and erosion which caused the Dust Bowl, putting thousands of Texans out of work and off their farms. It was only natural that many young people, with no prospect for the future, would turn to a life of crime. Clyde Barrow was one of these. He was born to a poor farming family just outside of Dallas in 1909, which by the mid-1920s had become totally destitute, living in a tent in West Dallas. Clyde first turned to crime around this time, stealing cars and food with his older brother, Buck. He was arrested for petty crimes as a teenager, and was in and out of jail until 1932. Hardship and abuse suffered in and out of prison embittered and hardened the handsome young man, leaving him with a hatred for both law enforcement and the entire
2: system that had failed him and the other poor people like him. Bonnie Parker was only a year younger than Clyde, and had been born in West Texas. Like Barrow, she'd lived in West Dallas, growing up poor. She was bright and a talented poet, but she married young to another petty criminal, Roy Thornton. They separated in 1929, but they never divorced. She worked as a waitress and a seamstress in Dallas, and her diaries from the time spoke of her loneliness and boredom with the life she lived. In early 1930, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow met for the first time and fell instantly in love. Bonnie waited for Clyde as he served his two-year stint at Easton Prison Farm from 1930 to 1932, and when he was released, she joined him and the gang he assembled as they began their two-year crime spree. Initially,
1: the Barrow Gang, which consisted of a few of Clyde's friends and later included his brother Buck, focused on small robberies of grocery stores and gas stations. He had told his friends that he intended to earn enough money to buy weapons and attack Easton Prison, though that plan was not taken very seriously at the time. Bonnie was arrested in April 1932 in a failed burglary, but she was released from jail after a few months when a grand jury failed to indict her. While Bonnie was in jail, Clyde killed his
0: first man, a Hillsborough shopkeeper. In July of 1932, Bonnie was released from jail and rejoined the Barrow Gang, continuing their crime spree through North Texas and Oklahoma. The gang killed at least two lawmen in Oklahoma and one in Texas as well as two civilians by January of 1933. Most of the killing was by all accounts done by Barrow himself with Bonnie or a teenage friend of Barrow's named W.D. Jones generally being the driver of the car. In March 1933, Buck and his wife Blanche joined Barrow, Bonnie and Joneses at their hideout in Joplin, Missouri Though family history has Buck trying to talk Clyde to surrender to law enforcement. It was at Joplin in April of 1933 that they successfully fought off police and evaded capture during a late-night raid by local police. The gang escaped, leaving most of their possessions to the police, who didn't realize it was the wanted barrel gang that they'd tried to arrest. Among those items were some poems written by Bonnie, and more importantly,
2: a roll of film which, when developed made the front page of every newspaper in the land. The film contained the only images of Bonnie and Clyde ever taken together, candid photos of the two posing together and separately with their cars, of Barrow showing off his guns, of Jones and Barrow clowning together, and most famously, Bonnie posing with a cigar and a gun, becoming the iconic image for all time of the gangster gun mall. The images and the story of the pretty little gal and her violent bow captivated Americans like no story before. In his book, Go Down Together, the Untold Story of Bonnie and Clyde, historian Jeff Gwynn wrote that the reason behind Parker's glamorization and the rise of their legend is simple, sex. Quote, John Dillinger had matinee idol good looks and pretty boy Floyd had the best possible nickname, but the Joplin photos introduced new criminal superstars with the most titillating titillating trademark of all, illicit sex. Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were wild and young and they undoubtedly slept together.
1: Scandalous. Scandalous. The irony is that according to nearly every account from years later of anyone who survived their encounters with the gang, there were few reliable accounts of Bonnie ever being seen to fire a gun. Both Barrow brothers, as well as W.D. Jones, were known to have committed murders, but Jones himself years later said, quote, As far as I know, Bonnie never packed a gun. During the five big gun battles I was with them, she never fired a gun. Still, Whether she was the killer that her public image made her out to be or not, the gang she was in, and the man she loved, certainly were. Throughout 1933, the gang ranged from Texas to Minnesota and as far east as Indiana, robbing stores and stealing cars and even robbing banks. At first, their fame worked in their favor, as there was generally a negative feeling about banks at the time, but their bloodthirsty reputation soon turned the public against them. Blanche later wrote that the constant life on the run began to wear on their tempers and relations in the gang. In June 1933, Bonnie was severely injured in a car accident near the Texas panhandle town of Wellington. She'd never be able to walk easily after that accident.
0: In July of 1933, the gang was hiding out in a tourist court, which is an early form of motel, in Platte City, Missouri, seeking to treat Bonnie's injured leg. They were ambushed in the middle of the night by Missouri policemen armed with Tommy guns. Again, the gang, armed with a powerful weapon known as the Browning Automatic Rifle, was able to fight off the attack and escape. But this time, it came at a terrible cost. Buck Burrow was mortally wounded, and Clyde, Bonnie, and Jones were forced to leave him
2: and Blanche behind. Blanche was arrested in nearby Dexter, Iowa. For the next few months, the trio remained on the run, ranging from Colorado to Minnesota to Mississippi. They returned to Texas in September to see their families, and Jones split company with them for the last time, going to Houston to see his mother. He was arrested in November 1933 and confessed to being an accomplice to Clyde Barrow. In his confession, he initially claimed that Clyde, Buck, and even Bonnie had done all the killing, and he'd been an unwilling participant. Later in life, he intimated that Clyde had coached him to use such an alibi in order to avoid full prosecution for his criminal activity. He was a minor at the time. Whatever the case, Dallas Sheriff Smoot Schmidt got what he needed from Jones, which was an eyewitness to Barrow's earlier murder of a local sheriff deputy, Malcolm Davis. Schmidt tried to ambush Barrow and Parker in Dallas not long after that, but they again escaped. Despite this, a Dallas grand jury delivered an indictment on Barrow and Parker for Davis' murder. Jones was sentenced to 15 years for his role as an accessory.
1: In January 1934, Bonnie and Clyde went on their final run from the law. Amazingly, despite efforts of practically every law enforcement agency from Texas to Minnesota, Barrow was still able to finally enact his plan of striking at the Texas Department of Corrections. He was able to orchestrate his raid on Easton Prison and helped several criminals escape, resulting in one prison officer being killed during the jailbreak. This finally put the state of Texas into the business of getting Clyde Barrow. Retired Texas Ranger Frank Hamer was enlisted by the state to hunt down the Barrow Gang. Hamer was a throwback to the old-school Rangers, a walking-talking embodiment of the one-riot, one-ranger ethos and cliché. He officially was credited with 53 kills and had suffered 17 wounds in the process. From February 1934 on, Hammer became the constant shadow of Bonnie and Clyde, just one step behind and always angling to get ahead.
0: In April 1934, the gang, now consisting of Barrow, Easton Breakout Henry Methvin, and Bonnie, shot and killed two Texas highway patrolmen outside of the town of Grapevine, Texas. Though eyewitnesses said that Barrow and Parker killed the officers, Methvin later said he took the first shots, and Bonnie, who could barely walk at the time, was asleep at the back of the car. The murders, followed a few days later by the killing of an Oklahoma constable, fueled the outrage against the Barrow gang, particularly for the first time against Bonnie Parker. According to historian James Knight, for the first time Bonnie was seen as a killer actually pulling the trigger just like Clyde.
2: Whatever chance she had for clemency had just been reduced. On May 23, 1934, fate finally caught up with Bonnie and Clyde. Ranger Hamer had followed the gang for months and knew that their movements often centered on family visits. He suspected that Methon was the, at that point, unidentified third member of the gang, and they were due to see his family in Louisiana. He assembled a posse of three Texas policemen as well as two Louisiana officers. One of the Texans was Dallas police officer Ted Hinton, who knew Clyde and Bonnie and, in fact, had harbored a crush on Bonnie when she was just a pretty young waitress at the local cafe he often visited. He was brought along because he would be certain to be able to identify both of them. On May 21st, the posse, on May 21st, the posse was in Shreveport, about two hours east of Texas, when they learned that the gang was in town and that Bonnie and Clyde had just separated from Methven. They set up an ambush on a road just south of town and waited for two days for the outlaws to come by. Just as the
1: posse was about to concede defeat and give up, Barrow's V-8 Ford was seen coming down the road. The lawmen opened fire with shotguns, pistols, and Hamer's powerful Remington semi-automatic rifle, pouring 130 rounds into the car. According to Hinton's later statement, quote, Each of us six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car got even with us. Then we used shotguns. There was smoke coming from the car, and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards on down the road. It almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. When the shooting was over, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were dead. In the car, the officers found over a dozen firearms, several thousand rounds of ammunition, and 15 sets of stolen license plates from several states.
0: After the ambush, a crowd of people gathered at the scene, which quickly descended into a circus, as onlookers grabbed whatever souvenirs they could, including scraps of Bonnie's hair and clothes, and even part of Clyde's left ear. You. The bullet-riddled car and bodies were taken into the town of Arcadia, where nearly 10,000 people soon arrived to take in the spectacle. Henry Barrow was driven into town where he identified his son's body. H.D. Darby was a young undertaker from nearby Ruston, Louisiana, and he was also brought in to both identify the bodies and treat the remains. Remarkably, he'd been kidnapped by the Barrow gang the previous year when they stole his car. They'd released him unharmed in Arkansas when he told them that he was an undertaker. Bonnie had laughed
2: and let him go with the remark that maybe someday he'd be working on her. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were buried in separate cemeteries in Dallas. They'd written that they wished to be buried side by side, but Bonnie's mother wouldn't allow it. Nearly 20,000 spectators attended her funeral on May 26, 1934. The largest floral wreath was sent by a group of Dallas newsboys, as it was estimated that Bonnie and Clyde had sold over 500,000 newspapers in Dallas alone. Clyde was buried in a private cemetery the day before next to the body of his brother Buck. His marker simply has his name on it in the words, selected according to Clyde's wishes, gone but not forgotten. In the years after
1: Bonnie and Clyde's deaths, their legend grew and transformed in surprising ways. Their demise served as the beginning of the end of the so-called public enemy era. Bank robberies and kidnapping became federal offenses, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation took a more prominent role in tracking down and capturing or killing the notorious criminals of the day. Within six months of the ambush that killed Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Babyface Nelson were all dead, killed in shootouts with police or the
0: FBI. Bonnie and Clyde were among the first celebrity criminals of the era of mass media. After their deaths, there was a good deal of backlash against Hammer and his posse for the brutality of their ambush and for not giving Barrow a chance to surrender, this despite the outrage at the gang at the time. Over the years, books and articles were written about the two, most of the early ones being lurid and sensational, though serious scholastic work came later. A large part of their appeal was that they were, in many ways, the ultimate outsiders, revolting against an uncaring system. The hardened murderers and thieves became over time rebels and romantic figures, by 1967, a film adaptation of their story, directed by Arthur Penn, became a revolutionary film statement. Starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, the film, which won two Oscars and was filmed in North Texas, was a landmark movie that set the stage for the new Hollywood movement. It was open and directly highlighting the link between sex and violence that in many ways was what made Bonnie and Clyde famous in the first place. Today, the image of Beatty and Dunaway is just as identified if not more so with Bonnie and Clyde than those faded black and white pictures taken at the spur of the moment, and you have to think that they both might have liked it that way.
1: Yeah, I mean that that movie is really what I think of when I think of Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. I can't even in my mind without looking at it, picture the actual photos of them.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a great movie, and then and you when you think of their death, you think of that scene at the end at the of the movie where they get killed and. That that's what you think of, but I have actually seen the car um, that they were driving. It was at, at an exhibit at the State Fair several years ago. Yeah, 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 I yeah. That. I think you were there, Scott, and they had the guns yep. that that hammer's rifle and several of Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde, several of Clydes weapons. Um, and yeah, it is riddled with bullets well, in it's, every possible way. It, all the bullets. It's such
0: an archetypical. I mean, like it is. It is the story. I mean, it is. It is you know Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, so many, I think, modern cultural books and movies and things have copied what it was. But but
2: you know it, It's entered the it's in the cultural lexicon. Like when you say Bonnie and Clyde, they're Bonnie and Clyde criminals. It's like, well, it's a that's a young couple who's out on a crime spree. Like that's that's what you think of, right? And but Mickey I guess, and Mallory, Mickey and Mallory are Bonnie and Clyde, right? No, and I get that. Yeah, natural born killers,
0: great film, but. Well, I guess what I'm sort of saying is that uh again there's sort of the romantic there's the the mm-hmm. beginning of their story, like so many, is there's this romanticism of, of what they are. They they are poor, they come from circumstances, it's them against the world, and then you know, you're sorta of rooting for them and then you realize, well, they're leaving a lot of dead bodies in their wake. Yeah. So yeah. so we're kinda yeah. over it.
2: Yeah, they they, they, uh, they were like Robin Hood, except for that they did kill people and they didn't give their money to the poor. They just kept it for themselves. Well, maybe they'd have killed less people if they'd have used bows and yeah. arrows. The, the interesting thing that I read was that the state and the federal government went after their families after they died uh, for uh, harboring them. Because their families would take them in when they'd come into town. And uh, most of the members of their family served some form of jail time uh, for harboring them, including both of the mothers. Well, this, you know, to throw it back to another Texas icon
0: and also criminal, um, go back and revisit the Creed Taylor episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. His boys were were terrible criminals, and he harbored them from the law as well. So, yeah, yeah, um, you know, do you so in the end? you know do you feel sorry for them
2: no not at all
0: um
1: i don't know only to the extent that i feel anyone should be given the chance i guess mm-hmm. and they didn't really get a chance in the end i don't know they they had plenty of chances before that so i guess i don't feel too
2: sorry for them yeah there's been some re-examination of bonnie's role and whether or not like even at the end she was in a horrible amount of pain because of her leg injury he had to carry her yeah. most places so yeah I, she was not a participant at the end at all
1: yeah I, I guess that what only bothers me is that you know looking back through a modern lens is we try to think of our our law enforcement as being above certain things certain tactics and you know just an ambush to just outright execute criminals like that seems excessive no i'm saying and given the time that this was you know like like you said things changed after this so um i I think maybe people were just you know frightened and afraid that uh that this was really the only recourse they had against these these types
2: of criminals yeah and and the first actually clyde was killed with the very first shots the one of the police officers uh panicked and shot first and he, he shot clyde through the head and they clearly saw him being killed right away um so like they were Clyde was Clyde had no chance in that now Bonnie might have had a chance if they if they'd realized they killed Clyde and she wasn't going to fight back but um yeah they 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 overdid it they were and as as um Hinton said you know we weren't going to take any chances he had killed he had killed nine lawmen up to that point yeah well uh but no undertakers so no undertakers, no, and that and that scene. So that's actually, if you watch the movie, uh, Gene Wilder in one of his very early roles has is in that scene um, where they kidnap the young couple in their car, drive around with them for a while, and they're having a good time with them and laughing. And then he says he's he says he's an undertaker. And actually, in the movie, she doesn't laugh. She gets Bonnie gets freaked out and kicks him out essentially. Um, but yeah, that, that is a real story that they did they did uh, spare an undertaker. After they stole his car. <laughs> well, tip of the hat to
0: all you morticians that are listening today. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I think it's very progressive that they're Bonnie and Clyde and not <laughs> Clyde and Bonnie. <laughs> you know, because
2: it's just nice. Um, oh, one more thing. if you On the movie, if you want to see that... Uh, Gene Hackman has always looked old. That movie was from 1967. <laughs> yeah. And he's bald-headed. Paunchy looks like Gene Hackman in that movie. He yeah. He's probably yeah. 30-something. <laughs> the word you're looking for, Sean,
0: is timeless.
2: Timeless. timeless. Yes. yes, timeless. Timeless. He'll yes. always he looks, be my Lex Luthor, and he's timeless. He, he looks exactly the same in Bonnie and Clyde as he does in The Quick and the Dead.
0: <laughs> Which was just, ironically, it was just on the other night and watched, yeah. watched yeah. it. Yeah. I was like, He's fantastic. He, timeless. He's a timeless treasure of American cinema. Yes,
2: too bad that he has retired. God bless you, Gene Hackman. Come (laughs) back and make one more movie.
0: That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at MrJava. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. If you like this show, do your duty. Get out there, tell your friends, spread the word, and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find new listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember... That even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.